Hello, listeners. This is the Criterion Cast, episode 184, where I'm going to be talking about Valley of the Dolls. My name is David Blakesley, one of the regulars here at Criterion Cast, and I am very happy to be joined this morning by uh, kind of a Criterion Cast member from way back. She's been on the program before. Uh, her name is Katie Stebbins, and I'm so happy to be finally talking with you this morning, Katie. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm all right. This is a this is a podcast that has been many months in the making. Yes. Uh, you know, Valley of the Dolls was a release in what the autumn of last year, 2016. And I remember, you know, I've been following you on Twitter for years, and and uh, you know, I, you know, we'll we'll maybe do some intros in a little bit, but uh, to help new listeners know who you are and what you do. But I remember uh, a tweet that you put out there when I think it was when Valley of the Dolls was first. It um, announces a Criterion release, and you were kind of like, I think I had already knew, known you as a pretty big fan of this film, but even I think you were a little surprised that Criterion was bringing this particular film into their canon, and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, when I saw that tweet, when I was kind of thinking about this movie itself, I, the germ of an idea dawned on me. It's like, I gotta get Katie on this program <laughs> so that we can talk <laughs> about this, because uh, for, almost from the instant that that announcement came down uh there was a little bit of a backlash a derision a dismissal a why does this film belong and and uh i'll even say even with some of the uh you know criterion releases of 2016 lists and rankings this film ranked at the bottom and it received mockery and and oh of course you know yeah and and, it's so predictable but (laughs) we'll get into that (laughs) yeah i mean it's understandable and yet it it, it bothered me and i felt like exactly exactly that's this this movie does not deserve it any more than any other criterion film there's there's reasons for that and i want to maybe save the deeper analysis of that question for later but uh, Katie, why don't you just tell, introduce yourself a little bit? Uh, there may be some people on the uh, on our feed who listen to this program regularly who haven't yet encountered you on social media, uh, but you're a great follow, and I just want oh. to give you a chance to say hello to our listeners. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm Katie Stebbins. I, um, my handle is uh, cinephile24 on Twitter, and I have a blog called Cinema Enthusiasts that I am pretty scarce on right now, but it's mostly because I kind of partake in this top 10 by year project that's really kind of uh, navigated the majority of my first time viewings um, and rewatches actually for like the past five years. So I take a year in film, I create a massive obsessive watch list, um, and I kind of methodically work my way through it, revisiting things, uh, watching new things. and. You know, at the end, I have a series of posts, um, you know, kind of, it's supposed to kind of encapsulate, like, diving into a year in film and what I take from it. Um, you know, a lot of that you can kind of find on my Twitter feed because I sort of, you know, will tweet about the films that I'm watching. Um, yeah, you provide kind of a running commentary as you Sometimes, go. yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, like, I kind of after the fact, I kind of grab some stuff and, like, put some thoughts on, on there. Um, but, no, it's... It's been a really fun um, project uh, that has, I feel like, just been so rewarding. And it's really fun to engage with other people on social media, uh, you know, about that project and get people excited and then, you know, learn things from from everyone else as well. So, yeah, that's that's pretty much what I do now. (laughs) So Yeah, and and you've been at this for a while. I mean, I don't even know how many 
top ten by year list you've done, but I will I say I think I've listeners. done like eight. I think I've done like eight. Yeah, yeah, from, from various decades. Over five you're, you're, years, yeah. Right. Yeah, you're not like a specialist in like, you know, Golden Age Hollywood or any particular. I mean, you've gone through, you know, more recent years, uh, 70s, 80s, 60s. You're working on a 69 project, which is yep. quite coincidentally where I met with my Criterion Reflections oh, project. I love that. I love that. I feel like yeah. you were around kind of uh, 65 when I did it like way back when too yeah, so like yeah. we were kind of in sync when i whenever i come back around to the 60s which is really awesome and that's right right where we are right now now this is a 1967 mm-hmm. film so it's a little bit uh prior to where we're both at and i may have a little bit more to say about my criterion reflections project which has been a little bit of a pause for the last several months but it is not over and done with by any means but yeah one of the things i i'm definitely uh eager to get into and, and I, I I do track along with you Katie um, as you're going through these 69 films is, is kind of you know comparing notes and, and I will say when when she does update her blog folks it really gets very you know very robustly uh, you know expanded so uh, definitely always something to look forward to when she uh, kind of comes up with those summaries so uh, I do hope that you're all ready to get into a, a great eavesdropping on our conversation about this film <laughs> because oh, yeah. like I say this is this has been something in in my my mind for a while we talked about it at the end of 2016 and it's just been taken uh, a series of, of different months i know you traveled to europe uh, i've been busy with my eclipse viewer podcast and uh, we finally found the right occasion uh, this weekend and uh, you know sort of mid-july to finally get things rolling so you know uh you know, one of the, one of the signals that told me that i'd really need to talk to katie about this you know, even like back in october of last year when people often change their Twitter handles to kind of, uh, you know, some kind of uh, scary movie uh, reference. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know where you're going. <laughs> you, were, you, you, you redubbed your name as Neely O'Horror. And it's like, okay, mm-hmm. there, that, that is right there. And it's a pretty brilliant little play on Oh, words. I'm bringing uh, it back this October. I, I'm not, I'm not coming course. up with anything new. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, 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 you, 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 well, you, you've climbed Mount Everest. You're at the top. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so, Katie, let's just talk a little bit about this movie um maybe uh, maybe i'll uh, give a very brief synopsis of my entry point into this and i'll turn it over to you and i might come back a little bit but yeah valley of the dolls i mean i have a childhood memory very distinct childhood memories of seeing this paperback book as well as others um but written later by jacqueline suzanne sitting around uh my mom's house the cottages where our relatives would get together uh she wrote you know really three big blockbuster bestsellers valley of the dolls and then the love machine and once is not enough and actually some of those books as i would sort of pick them up and sort of furtively sneak a peek were some of my first actual encounters with uh sexuality on a literary level uh and and she was just a big big deal and so i remember these books sitting around and and um don't remember specific conversations but they were just part of the women in my extent my family my my uh, extended family and and the culture around me uh, i didn't even know what dolls were but i remember valley of the dolls is just kind of this pop culture reference and uh you know, over the years I've, I've had a chance to, to watch the movie but really never gave it deeply serious attention until criterion announced that it would be released and i said okay let's 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 really consider this a little bit and uh and so as i kind of incorporated my my 
growing up memories and my impressions of Jacqueline Suzanne and what she represented, what she stood for, for for women all over this country um, as a cultural reference point, I said, let, let me let me kind of ponder this a little bit more deeply because I had probably sort of, you know, acknowledged that it's just kind of a campy little pop culture shtick type of thing. But as I've considered it over these past uh, several months, there's, there's much more to it than that. And uh, that's kind of where I want to kind of kick it over to you, Katie, because I think this has probably been a part of your life i don't want to say identity but i guess maybe in some levels it is yeah, for for quite a while and and i'd like to just kind of hear you know how you first encountered this film and kind of how it's grown on you over the years and kind of get, take it from there um i only encountered this movie two years ago which oh, okay. is insane to me um based on how like quickly it's embed like seemed to have you know embedded itself in me um I read the book two years ago. I'd always kind of, you know, it'd always been on my radar as something that I would um, be into because it kind of checks a lot of my boxes of like, you know, rise and fall of like showbiz, you know, us, you know, following a group of women over, you know, a seri- like a little, you know, a period of time and, you know, like it, just kind of like the pop culture uh, sort of iconic element of it. It had always sort of been kind of off in the distance as something that I wanted to catch up with. And, um, you know, I bought the book, a copy of the book used, um, you know, one day, and I finally dove into it, became completely obsessed with the book, uh, watched the film right after I finished the book, which was a terrible idea. Um, you know, liked it a lot, but wasn't crazy about it. Um, you know, was immediately obsessed with Patty. Um, Patty Duke and then I the film kind of stuck with me like I found myself thinking about it a lot and um, I went to see it when it was they were doing, uh, the Brattle Theatre was doing a John Williams like retrospective in uh, Cambridge Um, and this was his first theatrical movie score right yeah I believe so launched this incredible career (laughs) that is like unparalleled I mean there's been a lot of great music composers over the years but john williams is like the pinnacle right exactly so you know they were doing like a john williams retrospective so they played the film at brattle it was also a month after patty duke passed away so that was kind of my like um context for seeing it was like that's how i was thinking of going to the screening um as sort of like an in memoriam for her um but it was when i saw that um the film for a second time that it really opened up for me it had been like I'd just been thinking about it so much, you know, the experience of watching it was different than, like, kind of how I began to think of it after the fact and how it resonated with me, and once I was able to get some distance from the book and kind of understand, like, just, you know, kind of, it's easy to understand that, like, a book, like, an adaptation of something is a separate entity, but it is really difficult to actually do that in practice when you're very close to having just finished um, one or the other. So having gotten some distance from that, I was able to, it just completely opened up as its own beautiful, weird, like bizarre thing that I just have been trying to parse through since 2015, like what, what it is, um, about, about this film that is so striking to me and that I just really, I love it so deeply. And I'm, you know, and I understand some of the reasons why, um, 
but there are so many contradictory things happening within the film that seem to cancel each other out and yet uh, and yet I just I just love it like I just it's just such a unique piece of work to me um yeah and yeah it's, yeah so it, it is it, it is it's it's a really standalone signature piece of culture of this artifact you know and yeah, I think yeah, it really is an artifact it yeah. really is <laughs> And I think that's probably where maybe is is helpful to step back and let's put this thing in context because uh, I I think it's it is it's it's too easily and too unfair to just dismiss it as like this little schlocky you know trash film this this mm-hmm. little cult object which even reviews that are favorable overall who who kind of endorse yeah. it and have fun with it kind of put it in that little uh, little category like oh yes. this is just like guilty pleasure just mm-hmm. get goofy and silly and indulgent and just kind of you know get snarky with it and it's like you know yeah. <laughs> and, no and, i find that yeah. so like i you know i have been like wanting to write like a piece on this film and, and I, so I've, I've i've done like a lot of kind of looking up you know pieces that have been written about the film over the years and i was so i had the same experience where i was just like so surprised that like even the ones that really you know had an appreciation for the film it it there was still this weird distance between the film and the person writing as if it's yeah that kind of guilty pleasure like oh this is a great film for for this type of film like no one i haven't really found many people that are willing or i don't know um interested in contending with it on a on a level that kind of actually you know meets it face forward like meets the film face forward and just like contends with it on on that level and with with the level that i think it really deserves and i just think it's it's weird that there was this across the board dismissiveness even from the people who well, I think I think we can it. even you know make the case that there's there is kind of a, a sexist chauvinistic uh, mindset that that yeah. draws that conclusion, and I don't oh, want to just yeah. instantly get into this <laughs> confrontational mode because <laughs> no, I know. I, 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 my my hunch here is that. Um, you know, your take, Katie, and mine may be even kind of challenging <laughs> towards some people of uh, who are friends of ours who who might be in that you know place of just saying, oh, this is kind of just you know trivia. It's just kind of a camp fest, kind of a Rocky Horror Picture Show for the gay community and or whatever you know. And it and and you know, here I am. I'm Mister you know monogamous hetero <laughs> suburban white guy. I've uh, been married for what thirty going on thirty three years, and uh, I I find this movie really thought provoking and substantial. I mean, yeah, there are some moments that are colorful and and even cartoonish, oh, for and, sure. and 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 there's there's nothing you know wrong with that. Just like we can find deeper meaning in you know um, male oriented action films and comic book hero films and and you know but there there's themes and there's character development and there's poignant moments uh while men are you know flirting flitting around in tights and you know and 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 driving cars at breakneck speeds and and you know slaughtering people indiscriminately and all that you know but but you know let's let's get into the, the you know the 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 
concept here or how it talks about, you know, you know, men's plights and progress and, and all that kind of stuff. Well, you know, this is a story that is for women and, and <laughs> women, their concerns, their struggles, their, their, the, the barriers they face and the, you know, the internalized and externalized anguishes that they have to endure are, are really on display in this film. And I think, you know, they need to be taken seriously. Now, that doesn't mean we can't laugh at this film. We can't just kind of, you know, uh, you know, go along for the ride. But to kind of trivialize it is is kind of doing it a disservice. And and that's kind of what I want to go back to this this key moment in 1966-67 when uh, Jacqueline Suzanne's book Valley of the Dolls just literally exploded onto the charts, uh, sold millions and millions of copies, held the number one spot in the New York Times list for like, you know, what uh, twenty eight weeks, almost half the year in number one, and was uh, on this top ten list for sixty five weeks in a row, and absolutely just obliterated every other piece of fiction that was put out that year, and and it ensued controversy. This is a dirty book, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And it pissed off, oh, sorry, just like, it pissed off a lot of, like, you know, crotchety literary snobs, and it just, I don't know, it makes me really, it's just like, I love kind of the way that that book, um, just from what I've read, kind of just made such a splash, and kind of just, you know, obliterated everything that was going on, um, you know, in kind of pop fiction, and like, just upsetting all these literary types and right the updikes and the cheevers and the norman yep. mailers and all those You're guys just like kind of take just a seat dis- boys dis- i got this yeah. <laughs> disapproval just shaking their heads just disgusted and it's you know and i i just I, there's really something to that you know because there's just an um a an inability i think a um a just an inability or an, and an unwillingness to take things like this seriously it tracks to the film too uh you know i think that the reception of the book by kind of the larger literary crowd you know um that kind of attitude can be traced to so how to how the film is seen um or was seen upon release which was you know not good <laughs> right um, well and and but but it, it obviously struck a nerve i mean exactly. you've got millions of of people buying the book and probably millions more borrowing it or getting it from yeah, the library. Yeah, it tapped into something. It, it, it tapped did. Into something. It absolutely did. And so, you know, and, and for me, you know, again, I was born in 61. So 66, 67 were pretty formative years. I, and that's kind of when I feel like I became a conscious human being, you know. And so <laughs> I, I have very vivid memories of, of, the music I was listening to on the radio and the Beatles and the, and the, and the cartoons and the, you know, the kid oriented stuff. But I was also aware of the world around me. And so, you know, like I've already mentioned, you know, Valley of the Dolls was kind of part of that universe that I was just discovering as a curious young boy. Um, but I think back to 66 and 67, you know, the Beatles, a revolver and Sergeant Pepper and Jimi Hendrix and the Rolling Stones and Monterey Pop and, you know, the Mamas and the Papas and all, all the incredible stuff that was happening in pop culture in those years. And I still listen to that kind of music regularly. And uh, and yet here's something that was even bigger and bolder and more impactful. You know, I'm talking about Valley of the Dolls. And of course, when a book makes that kind of a, 
uh, you know, a splash, uh, well, Hollywood's not too far behind. And so there's a pretty hot race to who's going to get the rights and who's going to be cast into these, you know, into these, you know, incredible roles that were, you know, very much highly coveted. Uh, and, and really, I think, you know, this is a, a brilliant uh, exercise in casting and and the backstory even you know, with the the involvement very briefly of Judy Garland and and uh, all of those kind of you know behind the scenes stories uh, you know I think even looking at the bits on the supplemental features where Ju- Judy Garland you know was kind of trying to prep for the role you could see she was not really ready for this and it was just kind of a heartbreaking footnote in her career but it's part of the big Judy Garland story. Uh, but, you know, even getting Susan Hayward in was, was a great move. But, you know, Patty Duke, Barbara Parkins, Sharon Tate, uh, they really are just an absolutely, you know, iconic trio of women of that of that year, of that era. And that in itself, I mean, that they just nailed those three parts, um, I think, to perfection and and even the changes from the book to the movie because the book really was kind of a post-war saga from 1945 and to the 1965 and and so you've got this kind of you know drawn out story of three women not just coming of age but aging themselves and so Jackie Suzanne got much deeper into the the you know the the, the changes of life and the stages of personal growth and maturity I, I what do you think about the changes just from the book to the movie? Because the movie really condenses everything to a very immediate time period. I like it. What about you, Katie? Oh, I, um, okay. Where do I start? Um, I, I find the way that this film represents time to be so fascinating because as you said, it is this post-war saga. It takes place over like two decades. And when you're reading it, and jumping between the perspectives, you really feel like, like you are seeing these women evolve, um, and seeing and feeling time change uh, as as you read, and the film it creates such a um, surreal almost feeling with the way that it depicts time because I kind of it feels like the whole thing feels like a time capsule like it's stuck in time um like time doesn't really i mean there are time markers you know but 20 years certainly does not pass none of the costumes and set designs feel anything but the most current um you know kind of just of the moment you know pieces of of clothing and hair and 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 and, um you know props but um so the way that like that time move it but it keeps it keeps you know the majority of what's happening within those 20 years so it's cramming 20 years of story into you know two hours in a time where it doesn't feel like time actually moves and i think that that creates just such yeah it creates just like this very strange sensation um and that that really lends to a lot of its uh, appeal, but also I think a lot of its um, it has this you know static quality to it that I find really interesting to contend with. I guess because yeah, yeah. it is it's very it's static because of that time freeze, and it's static I think because of the way Mark Robson sh- uh, Robson shot shoots the film. Uh, 
you know, and I think yeah. those things put together, I mean, we can get into that, but like, I think that those things put together kind of create a very distinct feeling. And as far as like other sort of that shift from book to film, um, you know, the, some of the things that I had, you know, some of the things that I missed when I had just finished the book was that there's just such an acute sense of the interior lives of these women when you're reading it. Um, and also of the friendship between these three women. And I feel like the film, um, I don't know if I get so much of a sense of their interior lives from the film itself, the performances I do. Um, but kind of, if you take that, you know, I don't want to take that out, but like if, if you kind of just look at the, the rest of the film, I don't, I don't feel like that's on its mind necessarily. And there's not a lot of like subjective subjectivity like to the film um i don't know if that observation makes any sense but that's what i've got so that's what i've got well, right well, now. no no no, no that, that all makes good sense to me uh, you you've it, there there's kind of a surface quality to the relationships here and and yes. so you, it's implied they're friends they're they're it pals, is. But, but you don't really see them you know just hanging out in the same way and and it's because this is a you know it's a this is a very full movie i think it's just right at two two hours long so there's a lot that goes on but it's it, you know you just don't have that kind of expanse of time i mean it would be an interesting text to do kind of an extended tv series and i think there actually was kind of a remake but i've never seen it i don't know if they tried to go back and do some of that more historic recreation because yeah you definitely get this post-war vibe you know in the book where uh lion burke is a soldier i mean he's an ex-military and he's writing his war memoirs and so you really get into that whole that to the tension of the man who's coming back from the war he's got a lot to say but he's looking for the right vehicle the right outlet plus he's got this career and you know right and so there's you know there's definitely this this sense of progression that you get in the book and and uh if for those who haven't read it jackie suzanne kind of switches perspectives i mean each chapter has its uh, the name of one of the three women you know uh jennifer neely or Anne. Uh, that kind of is kind of your guide your marker now those other characters appear in those sections and it's not total stream of consciousness and and a lot of this really is you know, you still feel Jackie Suzanne's voice coming through all of it. You know, she's she's making her observations and her her commentary. And I think again that that candid take, uh, that kind of telling it like it is, is really what connected with. Uh, and not not only women. I mean, this was a, a book that was primarily directed towards a female readership, of course. But but I think a lot of men could get into it i certainly got into it because it, it gave me a window into the lives of three very distinctive sort of almost feminine archetypes and that was that's valuable to me i mean i i really appreciate hearing or or, or learning that perspective of a life that i'll never lead myself but is is still valuable for me to know what a woman's experience was like in those years and how does that experience translate into what's happening today and i think that's another observation that's been commonly made uh, especially as the you know the book celebrated its 50th anniversary last year this is the movie's 50th anniversary in 2017 and and <laughs> these storylines these themes of celebrity seeking and pill popping and turbulent uh interpersonal relationships and not exactly knowing what you want even when it's right there in front of you uh 
that feels very much of the moment. <laughs> you know, this, this is a story that has a lot of contemporary resonance, even though it may be very identified with a particular place and time, especially this movie, which really is a, a 60s pop cultural, you know, stake in the ground. Um, just you know, a couple weeks ago, uh, Scott and I and Trevor Barrett and I talked about Michelangelo Antonioni's Blow Up, which is another kind of tentpole of 60s pop culture. And, and that's, but that's much more from a guy's point of view with the women as sort of the accessories, especially those, those two young women who barge into the studio, but also the Vanessa Redgrave character. Here, the role is reversed. The women here are the center of the story and the men are kind of the accessories who come and go and do their thing and then are dismissed as needed, you know, to keep things moving along. Uh, but yeah, yeah. So, so this, this film is quite a, a product in and of itself. I mean, there's, we've already talked a little bit about the making of and behind the scenes and there's some really, you know, nice supplemental features that kind of get us into that world of, of, you know, the director. Now you talked about Mark Robeson and, and his way of, of, putting this project together. Why don't you expand on that a little bit more and give me some of your thoughts. I've got a few things to say myself, but I'll let you start it off. Um, you know, Mark Robes, I, you know, this is learning. I did not realize that he had directed Peyton Place. Right. Um, I think that's probably his main avenue into this. That was exactly. what won him the job, right? Exactly. Because, like, you know, my association with him is The Seventh Victim and The Leopard Man and the work that he did with Val Luton. Uh, you know, I know that he made things throughout the decades, but that's kind of my association with him. Um, you know, and so, but yeah, when I learned that he had directed Peyton Place, a lot kind of made sense um, to me. But it's still kind of a. It's hard to talk about Mark Ropes, and I, you know, I think that the film is, is I don't. There's a weird distance in in the way that he directs it that feels very old-fashioned um but that creates this kind of gliding feel where these characters are in these outfits are just sort of like gliding through these spaces that um are always very interesting to look at um even when they might not seem to be at first uh and you know by all accounts he was a very technical director he was very um did not treat you know the women nicely um you know patty duke and her memoir talks about sharon tate really um getting it pretty bad uh and just you know not being treated nicely at all so he it, it it's it's what it's interesting to think about kind of like you know how is he seeing this project what is it is it you know what is it to him and uh i think that that you know i think that the main thing that he brings to it is this um, these two things that are pulling at each other in this film that I find to be, um, you know, just so perplexing in, in the best possible way, because I think that there's this, the movie wants to kind of be in both worlds. I think it's really, in, it, or it wants to have it both ways. I think that there's so much to be said about when this film was made 1967 it is so close to the collapse of like you know everything it's taking of this classic hollywood old of classic hollywood, hollywood that, right? the studio era all that you know this is a huge year for you know um in in film his in american film history um and valley of the dolls is is not only a time capsule in in kind of 
the way that it looks and feels, but a time capsule in it that it's just taking place at the very end of this era um, in Hollywood. And, you know, so it wants to kind of have it both ways, where it wants to engage with the, you know, salaciousness and the pop culture currency of this book, which is so modern and had struck such a nerve with, you know, with its present moment. But it also wants to maintain a sense of class, you know, class and old fashioned, you know, kind of like that static quality that I've been talking about, um, that distance that is so different than anything that's going to be happening, you know, that was starting to happen, that had been happening in other places around the world. It's, you know, it has its sort of formal um, mind, I guess, in yeah. in the past a little bit, and I just find that kind of like we want to, you know, we want to take this book and 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 just capitalize on on all the kind of you know scandal of that, but also and kind of push like kind of push at things, but you know Mark Robson Robson is kind of like represents that kind of um, almost stuffy approach to the material to me at least yeah I no know. no i i totally tracking with you katie i mean there's a squareness to this if you can yeah. use that word yeah because there's this is such a big money prestige project the studio has its hands all over it I mean, even the way the story is streamlined and and uh the way the ending of the film is such a drastic radical almost you know finger in the face uh departure from from jackie suzanne's book and, and that conclusion is very important to Jackie and in, in, in her book and the fact that it is a completely inverted and I guess you know spoiler if you want to call it that um, in, in the, the the movie has a happy ending where where Anne goes home again whereas in the book Hannah sold that house and gotten the hell out of there you know years ago and, and never even I mean she absolutely ruled it out I mean she could have had lions she could have had everything that the movie assumes that she aspired to it was right there in front of her and she said no way i'm out i'm done i'm not doing it and so when you see the movie you know such so so drastically invert the conclusion of of the book um which you know the book has kind of a dour ending and it says you know oh, what yeah, we're, we're, we're yeah we're it, it's it's it fairly bleak. bleak you know and and um you know, but let's let's stay focused on the movie here. You know, this this was a this is a studio managed product, and I guess I'll just kind of use that word again. There's a squareness to this whole thing that even even when things get are, are getting sexually frisky and druggy and you know woohoo out there, it's still very you know there's a there's a hand on the throttle here. <laughs> you know, the reins are being held a little tighter than they would be even a year or two later. And it is a fascinating to think what if what if this project had been delayed by a, a couple of years? What if this they had assigned a director who's a little bit more freewheeling? We might have had a completely different product. But just like in in the old code days, it was sometimes it was that restraint that created the tension that allowed the the eroticism and the and the symbolic power of the film to come through even more strongly because you you get all the the pleasures of the subtext kind of erupting to the surface even though the censors wouldn't quite let it go all the way. So you know, I, so you you, you 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 give up something, but you get something in return. And I think that is there's such a fascinating tension that runs throughout this film. 
Yeah, no, I completely, um, I completely agree. There's that, the tension took me a while to, to kind of, um, notice, but it's, it is, it's, you're right, like, as things kind of get more, um, not outrageous, but, like, in, uh, loopy, almost, I mean, yeah. just, you know, because the second, um, you know, the first half is very focused on Anne, Anne is kind of a footnote in the second half of the, of the film, she's really just sort of there to support Jennifer, or to listen to Neely, or to stand next to Lion, um, you know, uh, so the second half becomes, you know, about Jennifer and, and Neely, and right. those... And so the second half is, you know, because of that, uh, you know, a lot, you know, definitely more, um, uh, uh, I don't, loopy's not the right word, but it's what I keep coming back well, to. Well, you um, know, there's a, just, there's an intensity, obviously. It's I mean, intense, with, 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 with Jennifer's story, I mean, it, oh, it, God, it yeah. ends in abortion and suicide and you know the nudies yeah. and all of that and so we get into a lot of different yeah. a lot of different stuff in the in the second half and and you would th- and you would think that the kind of the film itself would um meet or like meet that at some at some level but it it stays the course the whole time uh formally and you know just so many you know so many um like long shots where you're just sort of you know, there's not like a ton of close-ups. There are close-ups, but they're very like you know they're very like thoughtfully deployed. But it's the each scene kind of goes forth in a very similar fashion. Um, you know, there's a couple of like there's a you know there's some stylistic touches like the the montages, the amazing montages, the um, you know the, those kind of flashbacks to the sanitarium and to like Anne leaving that kind of have like this cloudy haze around them. Um, but yeah, there's a very, very sort of stay the course distance that, um, you know, like I said, just sort of creates this, this strange tension with the very of the moment subject uh, matter and material. And it also is very interesting to see the ways that, you know, the studio did think that it could push um, where it kind of felt like it could kind of nudge up against, you know, what, what they thought were, was kind of being... Um, you know, sc- scandalous at the time, kind of like with sort of the, the you know nudies that Jennifer makes, and you know seeing one of them or seeing the end the end of yeah. one of them with Gabrielle, you spilled wine all, all over my shoes. It's, end it's, of film. Um, yeah, it's it's hilarious, and the way that that curtain oh, is so just good. fluttering into the in, in front yeah. of the camera. <laughs> so good, um, you know, to kind of this um, aggressive, cruel. Uh, periodic acknowledgement of you know sort of the gay culture within hollywood um yeah, yeah. which i just find so interesting uh but then you know ted casablanca's in the in the book you know is is gay and is found with another man in the pool and that's obviously somewhere that they would not go right in the film so it kind of seeing the places that they'll that they will kind of like you know the you know abortion being mentioned seeing the place mm-hmm. that they that they will nudge up against and then seeing where they kind of where they draw the line creates a very interesting insight into kind of what Hollywood at this very radical kind of, you know, uh, changing time, what, how far they're willing to go at that, at that moment, at the, at the tail end of this, like really specific moment in history. 
Yeah, yeah, because these boundaries are 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 shifting almost on a month by month basis, you know. Uh, but this is this is kind of where the line was drawn here. This is where the markers were put down, and uh, and I think they were also thinking about where is the audience ready to go, because again, this is a movie that was made to be a blockbuster, and I think it did you know pretty robust business, you know. But um, it, maybe let's talk a little bit about the, these characters. Like we've we've talked about the women, so uh, but but let's kind of. Yeah, maybe you know, pick apart um, the characters themselves. Let's just start with Anne. I mean, like you said, she is kind of this the centerpiece of the film at, at the beginning, and she she does provide the framework. Uh, uh, Barbara Parkins, who was a star of the TV series Peyton Place, which was a pretty big deal at the time, and I, I again I think this is how Hollywood viewed this is this is a women's weepy in a sense, uh, but with a modern sensibility. That's kind of how they kind of cast this, and so they're going to bring in. Um, Barbara Parkins, who I guess I, you know, I I don't know. I mean, I remember seeing Peyton Place on TV, but I never watched it closely enough to really get it. And I'd love to see some Barbara Parkins episodes now. Maybe I have to go on a little YouTube search and uh, follow up the on same that. Thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's probably a DVD set out there that might be worth checking out. But she was she was a bad girl. She was kind of a bitch character in the TV series of Peyton Place, and she talks about it in some of the interviews on the supplements that she was. You know, she actually had an audition for the part of Neely, and we'll get into Neely in a bit here. But she was, I think, more properly cast in the in the Ann Wells role. The a good girl from New England who was just out to sort of establish uh, a sense of her own identity, didn't want to be a small town, you know, married the, you know, uh, captain of the football team type, which uh, she'd been cast to. And that's kind of all pretty succinctly summed up at the beginning. Uh, she comes in, she gets her job, and that's sort of what triggers this whole series of events that leads to the friendship between these three women. And, and as you said, you know, she kind of... Uh, establishes herself as kind of the the cover girl. She she lands in a kind of a modeling position and does have that really beautiful montage sequence of uh, which I found fascinating just because it's kind of a kind of a mirror of how uh, Hollywood and Madison Avenue marketed its products to the women of America. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. <laughs> so so yeah. What what are your thoughts on just the Anne character and and what does she represent to you? Uh, how do you identify or distance yourself from her? Um, you know, Anne's sort of, uh, you know, thought of as the, the boring one of the group, which she totally is. Um, oh, yeah. But I've, I've learned, you know, to, I've come around on, on Anne. I think Barbara Parkins is, like you said, I mean, the casting is just, she's so perfect in that role. Like, there's such a level of sophistication and just a pristine quality to her and to her voice which works yeah. so well for like the you know voiceover narration and, and her voice um, her eyes her, her voice, hair her just eyes, her, her poise her every, presence yeah yeah everything everything about the way she what she like what her presence brings and what that particular charisma i think works so well for the character you know and i i just think that and you know she's our gateway into this world of showbiz um you know but for me and uh, Anne is is the one you know. I mean, it's all all three of the women are trying to find their place in in the world with not you know. And they within, all have certain within, tools or skills yes. or personalities to work with, and so they have to figure out what's the right combination. Exactly, they, they and they're all trying. Each other. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. No, no. Oh, um, they're you know they're all trying to navigate um, the per- that profession and also kind of just more broadly you know um the world which i think is 
um, part of that nerve that that this you know source material and, and film kind of strike at uh, just that kind of you know this glamorous take on on such a relatable thing yeah. of women trying to find their place in the world well and and I think one of the things I really got from the book which I think also does come through to a certain extent in the film is just how besieged these women feel you know I mean and and that's I guess again this is where it kind of it stirred my empathy is like um, you really get the sense of what it feels like, and this is speaking from a guy's perspective of, of what it feels like to be objectified based on whatever attributes you bring to it. So, so you know, Anne is this kind of, uh, you know, poised, perfect, um, you know, uh, elegant um uh, queen if you will uh, jennifer is the body she's the sex bomb you know and, and neely is just the you know the that the package of talent and wow razzle dazzle showbiz but she's very um very uh you know, temperamental and, and unstable and and uh has this kind of craving need for attention and so but but each of them are sort of at the center of this bullseye where where there's just men kind of swarming in on them uh who are there to exploit them to to shackle them down to 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 manage them uh in ways that are not necessarily in their best interest and and yeah it's just kind of like i i just had that sense come through it's like this is what it's like for women in a you know certain sectors of society but not just a certain but but really across our culture and and I wonder if that was part of what captured the uh, the loyalty, if you will, because this wasn't just a book that you read, read, throw down, and pick up the next one. This this was almost like a way of life or a a a, a voice that had finally spoken the truth. And and I know we're kind of getting off the character of Anne here, but you know, in in one of the forewords to the book, Jackie Suzanne wrote, "Valley of the Dolls is not a dirty book," and she talked about. Uh, the book speaking truth and i think that's really such a an, she's candid she's not salacious she's just relating experience that she's lived and that she's seen lived all around her uh, over the course of many years of life and i think that there's also something to this idea of like what can we find what kinds of stories uh and styles of you know uh book or film can can we find truth in? And I think that, you know, it's kind of assumed that uh, that type of book or this type of film, you know, is not something that you, is there to, or is not the type of work that, you know, you can find some kind of truth or something that, that resonates on like a, on the kind of level that certain other, you know, works um, might evoke. But I think that that's just, um, I just find that a very narrow way of looking at things and I think that you can find you know I do think that there is an element of kind of trash to all of this and I mean that in the best way possible I don't think that that's a negative at all um uh, and you know but that's not how I see it it's a part of how I see it and I think that there you can find beauty and truth and pathos and and just a real honesty in in these in things like Valley of the Dolls. And I think, you know, that that the film kind of is a really perfect example of, you know, for the people that it does kind of resonate with, that um, that it is a work that that, that those things exist, or, you know, that those things uh, have in, I don't know, that those things are 
part of uh, the experience for me and you know i know for other people too um you know and i just you know i think i just think that those are things that aren't really addressed often when it comes to um i don't know to the film that i yeah. Yeah. No. No. I, I. I hear you. And and I think the trash or the camp or the kind of the you know the eye rolling humor, the excess or the gaudiness of it, is a way of sort of taking the edge off of the real sincere heartbreak and tragedy that a lot of these women and women who identify with them have had to to cope with. I mean, yes, the the truth here is not in terms of you know, a geopolitical strategy or history or, or the, you know, the, the so-called big ideas, which maybe uh, both culturally and historically have been more uh, male-oriented fields. This is about relationships. This is about um, a personal identity. This is, this is a story about, um, you know, self-reliance versus dependency on the man, the, the breadwinner. And even in the book, there's a lot of very interesting commentary about what happens when it's the woman who's bringing in the money. What's hap- what happens when it's the, um, you know, the, the, the female half of the relationship who's celebrated and the acknowledged success and the husband who is kind of the accessory and, and how, absolutely intolerant these men are of the idea that the roles might ever get reversed you know rather and and yet they're they're very you know nonchalant about putting women in the exact same position that they themselves find utterly unacceptable well well what about that fellas yeah. <laughs> you know and 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 i i i appreciate uh, jackie suzanne's um ability to to raise those questions without necessarily you know, getting didactic about it. I mean, she still still tells a ripping yarn, and and it's a very engaging story. But she does ask these questions. So, uh, I, do you think this is like a, a feminist work? Is this a this is an important statement in terms of contemporary feminism? Uh, in terms of its thought? I mean, there may, there may be people who advocate for feminism uh, who might not see this book movie phenomenon the same way but to me it it does seem to have that effect yeah no i um i agree i you know and i think it's hard to it's hard for me to really extrapolate on because i i like i don't i don't want to like just late like i get very kind of because i just i i'm trying to sort of skirt this uh trend of binary kind of thinking is it is it this or is something this and sure that kind of takes well i know that yeah and like it it just it this just this wider trend that i that i see happening that that i sort of rail uh against or that it like kind of like makes me like uh you know i do definitely think that there are a lot of qualities that i would identify as as feminist with within this film i think that there's you know just the things that these women contend with so much of the um you know just the, the fact that these are just three different women uh learning being told what, what where their worth is how hard they need to work you know what what that's going to get them in return which usually is just you know not much of anywhere um as far as just some sort of emotional uh uh happiness i guess for lack of a better word right, um, right. you know uh and and three very different 
very different women. You know, I, I see kind of, and, you know, we'll get into Neely uh, at some point, but, like, sure. you know, I see kind of, like, a... a, a a, I don't know what's the word I'm looking for. I see kind of like a tendency to try to kind of, you know, excuse Neely. Um, her like kind of, beha- you know, she's, oh, she, you know, she's, she's, and there is a lot. Like she's, she, she's worked like a horse. Like there's just, there's nothing, you know, she's just completely uh, drained of anything that she had. But she's also kind of a monster and uh, doesn't know how to... She, she knows that she's, she is self-destructive. You know, there's a lot of things that the studio or that, you know, that Hollywood and kind of the business is doing to her that is awful uh, in the way that they work her, the way that they kind of try to get her to think that, like, her problems are the reasons that she's so tired, all of that, mm-hmm. you know. But she's also... There's a kind of... She's a destructive person that is malicious and I think that that's, I kind of love that. I love that, that we get, that she's she's complicated and the movie doesn't try to make all the apologies for her and neither does the book. And I, you know, and I, I what I look for is all different, you know, all different types of, um, I, I just want like sort of women to be, to feel like full people and to feel complex, no matter what that kind of means. Yeah. To be the, in their, the center of their own stories. Um, and Neely's kind of <laughs> she's she's a complicated one, uh, oh, yeah, you know, uh, in in ways that are really abhorrent a lot of the time, um, you know. And I, I find that to, that for me is part of the of the kind of uh, lens to kind of the the um, almost you know feminist qualities that I see in the film is just how unapologetic the that character is and. Uh, and how willing to kind of contend with all of the kind of these contradictory facets of her that, um, you know, that exists within this one, this one person where it's outrageous on the one hand, but it, it's also, um, there's something real about it. Well, let's, let's look at the Neely O'Hara character then. I mean, she is a, a woman of talent. I mean, the, the, in the film, you know, she is immediately dismissed because she presents an unacceptable threat to Helen Lawson. Uh, but in the book, actually, that Helen Lawson gives her her break is another little condensation of the plot there. Because in the in the book, uh, there's another uh, up and coming star that Helen Lawson dismisses, and that gives Neely O'Hara, who's seen as this kind of teenage vaudevillian, not really a threat. She's just a kid with gumption, and so she she jumps into the spotlight, and that's kind of what launches her. It's it's a minor change; it doesn't really change the the overall trajectory of the character, but um, you know the other. I talked earlier about how I sort of see the women being besieged by these outside male forces kind of invading to get in their space. The other thing is this desperation of kind of an expiration date. Like for women, you know, like once you hit 30, baby, it's over, you know, or, yeah, or, you, or you better have your situation settled because it's all yeah, downhill slide younger, from there, you know. Yeah, the and, younger version of you is coming in. Exactly, like right. And, yeah. and, and I think here, so you, you sort of have Neely recognizing the very exploitative nature of of what she's gotten into now she's just a you know at heart she's a kid who loves to sing and dance and 
please people and entertain them and get a reaction. And that is, of course, the driving force of show business. We've got the people who love to get up on stage and play to the audience. And we've got the audience that loves to see people get up there and show their stuff. And that's, that is, you know, very wonderful thing about life is the ability to have those exchanges and to, you know, to, to, you know, take pleasure in the talents of, of people who are willing to get out there and perform and put it on the line for that. But as it becomes industrialized, you know, Neely finds herself exploited. She's got to get up early. She's got to sparkle Neely sparkle and all of that. Yes, and yes. it's and it's because she needs to be on because the studios themselves know that this this woman only has maybe five or ten good years, at least in terms of the conventional outlook on things. So they gotta squeeze gonna every drop out everything. of that lemon. Yeah. Right, exactly. And so and so Neely knows the clock is ticking and that her money making years are are swiftly drawing to a close unless she can somehow you know break the mold and 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 persist but you know it's just it's a hard hard ordeal for a woman to do that in this industry and so yeah so that's you know she she knows she's being exploited but she's gonna give as good as she gets you know and and i think that's that's where the monster comes from it's it's it you know there's certainly you never completely innocent you can never say i'm just a victim they made me do it you know she's still making choices and she's still treating people pretty harshly herself and she ultimately pays the price in terms of a psychic breakdown which again you know even the sanitarium scenes have their own kind of you know eye-rolling camp appeal and excess to them but let's let's not let's not make fun of of the real anguish of addiction and mental health and and the very heavy toll that uh, this uh, star life uh, takes on on real people yeah and i think that with neely like it's just like the worst possible combination of the business that she gets into and the expectations that are just pushed you know pushed on her and um and and her insecurities you know she's she's her own worst enemy um but at the same time that is all being uh that is all coming out to the degree that it is because of this need to, you know, keep going, keep going, keep going, to know that, you know, what's expected, what people need out of her, what, she, you know, there's a scene where she's just like, you know, that she can't remember the last time someone didn't, you know, talk to her where they weren't like nagging at her for something. Yeah, beating and her even. I mean, be- beating it, it, her, yeah, yeah. In that, like in that the big choice of words scene. is, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Whether you know, that's emotionally or physically, but but you really get the sense that you know, uh, well, you know, we you even alluded to uh, Sharon Tate's kind of having to put up with just this shy of abuse from Mark Robeson because that is often how directors were instructed to treat the women, especially the pretty ones, is break them down, show them who's boss, and and uh, you know, and the, even the, the the technology, if you want to call it that, of, of pharmaceutical medicines, is like, oh wow, these little pills can give us an extra six hours of energy, or they can, you know, calm the jittery nerves, and so you're taking meds to counteract other meds, and it just becomes this craziness. Yeah. You're not thinking about like they're not thinking about anything about what that actually does to the person. It's about you know math, you know maximum productivity. Yeah, um, and doctors and ready to just hand out, out the scripts and, and all of that, yeah. right? So it's it's just a monstrous system. Is, is and and it kind of heightens that insecurity that she has, that need for mass love, you know that, uh, and it and she has a really distinct ability to burn all of her bridges, and it's just this pretty tragic combination 
of a girl who kind of craves, uh, a, you know, love on like a mass scale, fame, you know, uh, and success, but doesn't, with an industry that is just so taxing and so harmful and so easy to, you know, collapse within that um, emotionally and mentally, that it just kind of, it just really, you know, it just totally destroys her. She doesn't have that particular combination to, right. to weather that. And and to be fair, I don't think that a lot of people do. Uh, well, after but, she burns out, we'll find another pretty young thing and we'll move her out of the yeah. mansion and put the, the new... Uh, yeah, no one cares. We, we, we want to talk about Lindsay Lohan. We want to talk about Britney Spears. We want to talk about you know any number of the pop darlings of 2017 who will be the burnout waste cases of 2027, yeah. you know? As long as there's another version of or another type of this, you know that fills this particular role then you know you're disposable and uh that's it it's you know yeah. you've well, gotten they've gotten what they can out of you and you're not really you know so the idea of like feeling that kind of uh it always just amazes me like i can't imagine you know kind of feeling that sense of worth and love on on and like as if you know being that culture of you know breeding like kind of this star that you know you're told and your whole world is about how you are the center of everything you're and adored like, and then you're adored uh mm-hmm. you know and to get to feel that in a way that was like of course this is the way it always was supposed to be you know like you know, where it just feels perfectly natural and then uh to kind of have everything and then to just you know be like like you're not they've moved on yeah, uh, well, yeah I can't imagine bit. what that does to a person. No, well, no, it's 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 it's, it's got to be just a complete crash and burn. I mean, you're on this you're on this incredibly stimulating drug of of you know mass adoration and worship and the ego gratification of the standing ovations and the packed houses, and then all of a sudden they're just not there anymore. But you've built up this kind of you know tolerance slash craving slash you're just accustomed to it. You you sort of begin to internalize. This is who I am. The people love me. I can't miss, you know. And then all of a sudden, that formula doesn't work anymore. They've moved on to something else, and yet you're still left with that same kind of gaping void of <laughs> how do I fill that now? Well, well, one one solution is just more and more drugs that'll at least give you the, you know, the uh, you know the the brainwash of of pleasure and distraction and satisfaction, and until even that doesn't really do the job anymore either. Yeah, and um. Yeah, with, you know, and there's a lot of scenes with, Neil, like, Neely's very acutely aware of kind of bad publicity and things like that. She talks about it several times. She's aware of kind of the perception of her, you know, um, yes. the perception of her as an as, as a celebrity, as an, uh, a performer, and what the public is thinking of her based on what's going on in her personal life, how that's translating, you know, oh, we, you know, we just like hearing that she quote-unquote had laryngitis uh, you know yeah. in the mm-hmm. in the kind of her comeback role that she ended up kind of completely screwing up this oh they don't think it's accidental like with the you know with the pill overdose like you know bad publicity good publicity all that kind of thing just keep me in the headlines baby keep me in yeah. the headlines <laughs> lion is like you know people love to forgive like there's just a lot yeah. of stuff about her you know the status of her career from like a publicity level and kind of like a what is the general population kind of like how do they perceive and see her is it too much have we gone too far like am i still able to kind of win over audiences um you know and she's she's paranoid about it uh you know and and very aware of it and uh and that 
and she's just stuck in this really awful cycle of, you know, going, 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 you know, being addicted to these pills and booze and all that, and kind of, you know, that becomes, like, this sort of, you know, she kind of morphs into, like, a kind of rotted out version of herself that just can't stop herself from being just a destructive person to the people around her and to herself, uh, you know, and what does she do? She takes, you know, more pills when she when she feels the impact because that's the thing with Neely that's what I you know love about her uh, so much or one of the things I love about her so much is that she's we have these moments where she she knows that she is that she does burn these bridges she 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 knows and it hurts you know what she, kind of the way she pushed away Mel all these things she it they stick with her and these things stick with her and and she copes with it by kind of indulging more and more in the thing that keeps kind of, you know, breaking her down. And I, I think that we're given a handful of scenes that show us that, these moments. And, um, you know, I just, I I love that kind of, that conflict within her that we get to see. And she never really gets to reconcile it because she just can't get out of that cycle for a long enough period of time. Yeah. Well, let's let's give enormous credit to Patty Duke, who was like, what, all of 20 years old and she did this she had already won an academy award for her role in the miracle worker she was a star of a popular tv sitcom in which she played two different characters <laughs> uh identical cousins you know and all that just a little weird anecdote back in 1980 i was in my first punk rock band called the maroons and one of the very first songs that we learned was the patty duke theme song <laughs> oh that's awesome <laughs> it is so funny i but, love it well bruce was our he was kind of the one guy who actually knew how to play music in this band and he could play keyboard and and, and bass guitar and and you know he was gay, and he he kind of got me in on the Patty Duke cult there, <laughs> even though I really had no clue. I, my gaydar was completely oblivious at that time. <laughs> but but you know he had us do the Patty Duke song. I can still kind of plunk that out on guitar if I had to had to had to do it. You know, but um, she she was quite remarkable, and you know it's 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 almost kind of sad that Patty I think was for many years very self conscious about her acting in this particular role, and and really sort of had to have a late in life. Um, you know, reassessment of what she did because I think she felt almost, you know, apologetic or embarrassed that uh, she was chewing so much scenery. But it's so it's so indelible and and um, you know, Nelly O'Hara, <laughs> that whole oh, thing. I mean, that, that culmination. It is. It's like and I just, I just kind of want to give you a chance to just kind of you know share your bond with that character. I mean, because again, I'm a little bit more on the outside looking in here, but I, you know, I I just her performance is just incredible and uh i'm glad at least she was able to get that distance where she could you know see what other people saw in it or what they identified with it and there's a very nice uh supplement of of her at the castro theater in san francisco in front of a a pretty appreciative audience to say the least and and she just recognizes wow i've made an impact well beyond whatever she thought she was doing back in 66 67 when they were filming this thing yeah um uh, okay like <sighs> patty duke as neely o'hara um it it's sort of become this performance that uh you know like i said like the film kind of feels like embedded in me but like neely uh her neely like really um it means so much to me like and i i can't you know that the 
and it's not like I re- I don't really relate to this character all that much. Like I I mean certain things I think they're very relatable about her, um, but it's it's more the just the performance and the energy she's bringing to the screen. The and sass, high, yeah. <laughs> sass. There's like a um, a I, I can't really describe it, but there's a this sixties. Uh, teen girl cadence that exists uh, mm-hmm. that I uh, within certain actresses that I find very appealing uh, you know Sue Lyon and Lolita is a performance that I obsess over mm-hmm. um, to like the nth degree and Patty Duke kind of has that quality in her in, in kind of just her overall charisma and presence but then it's kind of it's morphed with this just you know this uh Mercedes McCambridge type of bark and scowl that she brings this to this you know this character who you know is she's this this petite twenty year old you know in in real life and right. is is depicting and is is given a really impossible task um, having to kind of depict like what is the equivalent of twenty years in the book of history with this character but you know. But Neely doesn't really seem to age, it, you know. She does so it all about like six this, months of <laughs> film yeah, time, you know. <laughs> it's like you know she has to kind of go from this like spunky kid, uh, with a go-getter attitude to like this, you know, washed-out, you know, for you know star that's seen it all and that is just at the end of her rope, um, you know. And this is you know I I wanted to get a little bit into and you know. My whole thing is that I, I desperately want to write like an appreciation piece of her because I found that, what, like you said, with the people who write about the film that you know really love it, that there is a kind of, uh, you know, oh, almost not condescension, but like a, you know, oh, it's 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 this type of thing. It's great, but it's this type of well, thing. Well, you're almost afraid um, to encourage people to take it seriously because, well, what do they think of me? I'm so, you know dippy or so yeah. gullible that i'm gonna fall for this yeah know, that's stuff. like oh i'm in on the joke i'm in on the i yeah, love this right. movie but i'm in on the joke kind of right. thing um i find that uh you know i can't find anyone that's really willing to give her her due in this movie uh you know there was a special feature i watched on the original dvd that uh you know when they talk about patty duke it's uh they don't really have good things to say about her and these are from people who love this film and i I don't... The fact that this is kind of grouped with, like, Faye Dunaway and Mommy Dearest, I I don't understand. Like, I have... I'm so perplexed and confused by the... Uh, I don't know. The dismissiveness that, that... Or the kind of the way that people want to take mm-hmm. in her performance, which is just that it's so entertainingly over the top. Yeah, okay. I mean, it is. But there is... It's... But she gave it's something kind of genuine of herself in all this. Oh, I mean, absolutely. She, she, she had to be speaking from a core that felt truly what, what she was expressing. This wasn't some kind of like, hey, check me out, folks. I'm being outrageous over here. Which sometimes you get from intentional camp movies where it's kind of this pastiche, retro, sticky type of thing. Like, hey, we're going to be all zany and bonkers like they were back in the 50s or whatever. It's like, no, there's there's real pain. There's real attitude. There's real feistiness coming through in that. And it's just even the vocal timbre of her voice, the way it just sort of rasps at the it's edges. Amazing. It's like it's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. Like, yeah. it's, you know, it's... I... You know, I wanted to kind of give, you know, 
a little bit of context of where, if that's okay, of like yeah, kind of please do. what yeah. this what this film was. For, I mean, this film like killed her career, like her film career, like it really stopped it. Dead yeah, in its I tracks. haven't really tracked it. Be, what because they thought, oh, she really can't act, or she's just a. A, a, uh, a kid a kid actor washed up and she better go she on didn't, again. Yeah. I mean, I understand why she went through her life calling this movie Valley of the Drek um, because it was supposed to be her... Um, launch pad or whatever. Her yeah. launch pad. <laughs> to her adult. into adulthood. Right. Into an adult, being seen as an adult woman. Uh, her adult film career. And it kind of, you know, yeah, she got roles after this, but it when you look at her filmography it is not it is not what it was supposed to be based on where she was at in 1966 65 67 and it's because of the and people, it's because the, of this film the she feedback did not, she got was yeah, oh yeah she was seen at the time of its release as being just so over the top unhinged. too much yeah. yeah unhinged it was just too much it was kind of seen as a joke you know and you know, uh, that changed the course of things, but like where she's at right now in her life, I just find it, at the point of this being made is just, you know, so interesting, you know, at that point, it's sort of the peak and nadir of, of her career as an adult actress. Um, y- you know, and, uh, you know, she's at this point, you know, the youngest actress to ever, you know, win an Oscar, uh, you know, her name's ubiquitous, uh, you know, she, but her life at that point, her life had been so awful. Um, you know, she had been basically kind of given away by her mother uh, to these um, this couple called the Rosses, who were just like these slave driver stage, you know, guardians mm-hmm. who um, isolated her completely from any kind of existence growing up. She had she wasn't allowed to have friends. Was she kind uh, of a prodigy, like as a young she, child could sing and dance and entertain and all that, and that's how she kind of landed in this way of life yeah, and all? Yeah, okay. yeah um, but she also, you know, she said that she grew to love acting, but at first, you know, when the Rosses kind of started everything with her, um, she was operating out of fear, you know? She was... Uh, she was just emotionally abused throughout her entire life, um, broken down completely. Uh, you know, she wasn't allowed to have any kind of life. She was kept in this space with the Rosses. They wouldn't. She wasn't allowed to do anything without them. Um, she had no friends her age. They took all of her money. Oh, that's um, horrible. Yeah. Yeah. She, you know, um, she started rebelling kind of in the last seasons of, um, <clears throat> of, um, you know, the Patty Duke show. Right. right. Uh, because that was kind of her only outlet is like, hey, I'm a star. You know what? I can't, you know, I can't really rebel against the people who take care of me and raise me. So I can let me try to see, you know, like what I can get out of, uh, you know, well, out of these other people. Right. There, there's no uh, Patty Duke show without Patty there's Duke. There's no Patty so Duke show without Patty Duke. They're going so, to cater to me. She's right? like this kid who's just like got a lot of power, but nowhere to put it. And uh, who has just been, you know, had such a unique, um, you know, kind of awful existence i mean these these people you know this mother uh just was a seemed just like a very depressive woman who didn't have any kind of willpower because she was only allowed over to her daughters to visit her daughter once a week and that was to do the laundry of the guardians that um you know that were taking care of her like they didn't allow her mother to attend the oscars with her um you know so there's there's this this she it was just an awful, awful existence, and she just was completely robbed of her childhood. So, you know, when she was 18, she left, she broke free, started living by herself, but she had never done anything by herself before. She had been kept from any kind of, like, actual existence. So, you know, she starts partying, she gets into a young marriage, she suffers a major depression, she has no idea of her place in the world, 
uh, you know, or Hollywood in Hollywood or as a woman because she's sick of playing kid parts. You know, she becomes like a recluse. She goes into a sanitarium before, you know, a couple of years before, I think a year before Valley of the Dolls. Okay, uh, so films. this is lived. There's a lot of par- yeah. Oh There's like a yeah. lot of parallels. She's um, she uh, you know, is um, you know, she's had become in her later life a, an advocate for um, you know, being bipolar and manic depressive and 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 writing books. Uh, kind of shining a light on mental health issues and it was in the time like a year before um, you know kind of shooting I think it was 1965 or 66 that she suffers her first manic episode doesn't realize that they're manic episodes until like a decade later um, but you know she's kind of just going through these very strange periods doesn't know what's happening to her and again doesn't know how to function in the actual world because of the way that she grew up so this is this is oh, there was so much writing on this you know uh, and so much you know this is a woman coming into her own trying to exist in the world taking on getting the role of Neely O'Hara and giving it everything she's got this is like this performance is from a woman who has something to prove Yeah. and a lot of people you know don't think that she you know it it, it a lot of people took from it something different. I think, I think she's incredible in this film. I think she, there are so many moments of agony, you know, mm-hmm. and truth and just tragedy and sadness, just such sadness. The way that she says, I need a man to hold me is yeah. just yeah. heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And then there's, yeah, but then there's all the boobies, 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 nothing but boobies. Yeah, which right. Is so amazing. Like, <coughs> you know, it's, I can be, you can be completely entertained by how, yes, she is outrageous at certain moments. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's great and it's amazing. And her performance in this film is why I watch films. Like, yeah. it is, if you can't, you know, if you can only see it one way, it's just, there are so many other facets going on with her in this like it can be funny and kind of unintentionally funny at times and outrageous but also incredible emotional work her last scene in this film is just it i don't even have i don't it's devastating. It's beyond words it really is. it is devastating it, it, it's a very long sustained bit this isn't just her mugging for the camera this is you know dredging up the darkest muck from her soul you know that that is something real that is something really poignant and profound and you do wonder if some of the you know casual dismissal is just people who aren't quite ready to grapple with that I mean I didn't know I I knew I knew sort of in the vague sense that Patty Duke has had a lot of difficulties in life both as a child and in throughout her adulthood um, and that there was a certain pain and poignancy to her her death at a relatively early age as well so uh, you know that's that's all pretty much there um but it might be a little bit more than some people maybe are ready to handle or or it's just again it's sort of a manifestation of just not taking young women as seriously as i think they deserve to be uh, regarded and 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 again this this film sort of being seen as a you know a bit of fluff a bit of you know pop culture trivia some ephemera that happened to you know strike a nerve and, and make a lot of money um, well th- there's more much more to it than that and I'm I'm certainly not 
the type that will say just because it made a lot of money means it's deep and profound and, and resonant. We certainly see a lot of money makers these days that are pretty shallow and pretty pretty hollow at their core. Uh, but I don't think that this falls into that category. No, I, I don't think so. Um, yeah. Either. Well, thank and you. I, I, that's a, go oh, ahead. sorry. No, that's fine. I, um, I, I really appreciate your take on Patty, and, and I know there's probably more to say. And I, I do hope that this, this podcast kind of gives you that little uh, encouragement to kind of continue pursuing uh, this this statement uh, i will eagerly read it i know other people will as well but let's kind of keep moving along here and let's talk a little bit about uh jennifer uh sharon tate uh, the body i mean and, and as i as i'm thinking about it just sort of in the spur of the moment here we've got you know you've got Anne, who's the poised and princess-like beauty you've got uh neely who's the entertainer and and you've got jennifer who's you know, basically, again, the the, the sexual object. Uh, she's the woman who has the the physical attributes to you know get men's eyes bulging and make other women jealous and and all of that. And it's, I mean, these are three sort of you know categories or camps that that women you know seem to feel obliged to fall into. Or 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 there's the more traditional mother, housewife, chaste woman, and all of that. But these three women are, are sort of looking for alternatives to that more domesticated stereotype. And I'm not here to bring a special shame or praise on any one of them, but it, these are just choices. These are, these are um, you know, sort of centers of gravity that, that women fall into. And so there is the story of Jennifer and, you know, Sharon Tate, she's the lowest build of the three um and you know she's incredibly gorgeous and and every commentary every every review i've read kind of points that out and yet i want to kind of go beneath the surface as well and just say you know here's a woman who certainly has attributes but it's it it's kind of painful to see how hemmed in she is by that uh, that surface observation when, you know, yeah, she doesn't have, quote, talent in the same way that Neely does, but but she she has a heart, a soul, a mind, and and just kind of, you know, give me some of your thoughts on, on whether you want to talk about Sharon Tate, you want to talk about Jennifer, the character, uh, just give me some observations there. Um, yeah, Jennifer, to me, is uh, the heart and soul of the, of the film. Um, I think she's... Um, you know, I, I think it is worth noting how um, stunning Sharon Tate is. I mean, it's it's a very easy thing to fall back on, but, you know, uh, there is something... I think she... Both the way she's costumed and, um, you know, her, her makeup and her general just sort of look kind of really, rep I think, rep is, represents the time um, that, like, and not just, like, a general time, but, like, a very hyper-specific moment in time, um, better than any kind of one one thing um, in this in this film. I mean, she, her, I mean, her costumes are amazing, and she looks amazing, but, um, but beyond that, you know, Jennifer, uh, and, Sh and Sharon Tate as Jennifer, um, is... I just I just think it's such a beautiful um, performance that really moves me, like really, really moves me. Um, you know, I think that she really gets across this truth for her, like for Jennifer, Jennifer's truth, which is that she is only worth 
you know, that her body is, is, is her sole source of worth. It's her ticket, right? It is her ticket. It's mm-hmm. her everything. This mm-hmm. is what she's been taught by her mother. This is what she's been taught by the industry. And it's not something that she knows about herself that, that is like, that is separate from how she sees herself as a person. That is how she sees herself as a person. She puts herself down constantly. Um, you know, she's just like, I know I don't have this and I know I don't have that. And, and you feel this woman's existence as someone who doesn't think much of herself beyond what she has to offer physically. Mm -hmm. And, um, the way that she gets that truth across and then what that ends up meaning for her down the road as everything kind of just really goes to shit, um, for her is really, um, the soft spoken tragedy of that character is something that I think Sharon Tate brings to the screen so so beautifully it's such it's so beautiful what she's i don't know like every time i watch it i'm more um struck by her and i i'm more um just emotionally kind of shaken yeah by by certain moments and by kind of her um fate in the film and Mm -hmm. um i think that the scene in which she you know spoiler alert Mm -hmm. um kills herself is uh, such a beautiful piece of acting. Um, really, just Again, it's right. so sad. She's and she's she, channeling all this pain without saying a word, with with basically just the cast of her eyes and the the way she reclines on the bed, and you know, and I think about you know, probably a big component of this is is her mother issues, you know, that that, that yeah, come through in yeah. these uh, telephone <laughs> monologues, exactly, gets, right, yeah. right, where mom is absolutely just reinforcing, honey, you are just a body, you just put those boobies up front and center and make your money, you know, shake your money maker and all of that. And, and even though, you know, she doesn't always do what her mother tells her, as she says in one of her great quotes, um, she's still very much internalized that message and, and she can't shake free of it. And it does, you know, she does pay the heaviest price of anybody, even for all of Neely's pain and anguish and, and trauma and suffering at the end there. uh, Obviously it's, it's uh, Jennifer who's, you know, sees herself as unfit to live uh, when adversity strikes and she's facing a mastectomy. But she's also had, you know, a marriage to uh, a man, you know, with, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a deus ex machina, you know, kind of this fatal disease and all of that, but with the with the controlling sister. And again, this is another situation that I think a lot of women can relate to is getting hooked up with a guy who's got a lot of family baggage you know people from the outside running his life and it's not just you and him and your you know idyllic dream come true you've got the other relatives especially when there's somebody who's got you know whether it's talent or money or prestige um the the other hangers on in the family will very quickly and often intrude into your domestic life in ways that you know you really have no control over but you got to you know find a way to grin and bear it or let it you know get the best of you and that's exactly what happens to jennifer here yeah and with in and you know and jennifer and tony have their uh, have um are both kind of dealing with different versions of that um you know because share or um you know jennifer is sending all of this money to her mother uh you know and is kind of uh her mother clearly like harps on her uh to and expects uh, money to sort of be sent to she's she's not just supporting herself she's trying to support her family and then later on 
she's not just trying to support her family she's trying to support her family and her husband in the sanitarium and 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 the costs of that so the month of financial pressures for jennifer are just completely um unbearable and kind of impossible basically and then tony you know he's um you know well-intentioned but um you know controlling sister miriam is um very controlling with her with their money that or the money that he makes because you know little does he know that uh you know he's in danger of getting this disease and she wants to be that she wants him to be financially um stable enough and have you know saved enough money to um you know, to be able to afford the the cost of taking care of him after the fact. So there's so much financial pressure on these two and so much familial pressure on these two um, from the get-go and, and it just all kind of, you know, um, collapses. Um, and I just, I find that, that the fact that, you know, there, there are different versions of uh, what they, both with money and with family, that each of them bring into their marriage, um, you know, I just find that that to be a really interesting, you know, commonality between them. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so we do have the two kind of supporting female characters, if you will. Miriam, uh, we've already been talking about her, uh, Tony's sister. Uh, Lee Grant, it's a, it's a, it's a small performance, but still very effective. I mean, just her, her steeliness and and her, you know, just kind of waiting in the wings there, keeping an eye on on everything is very, very effective. And then Susan Hayward as Helen Lawson, the uh, the aging grand dame, and just this kind of my own tree <laughs> exactly <laughs> you know i just you, you you just love these roles and, and and yeah i guess we can maybe talk a little bit about the music as well uh, uh mm. i think you and i have already talked uh, offline or off the podcast <laughs> here about Dionne warwick and the theme of the valley of the dolls and just how that just clamps into my brain and does not oh, let go <laughs> it does not i mean i'm yeah. happy i mean it's you know it's, it's a it's a beautiful song it floats it like floats mm-hmm. through your brain and mm-hmm. i I love getting lost in it, but it's yeah, it is impossible to watch that film and and not kind of just find yourself humming um, yeah. the the song like kind of just without even knowing it. And the almost. movie kind of milks it, you know. They certainly it does. bring oh, it, it in really there, and, does. and it's, it's, it keeps reverberating throughout. Yeah, uh, you know, at hey. key, key moments. I have no complaints about that, and None and, and really, and Dionne Warwick's voice. I, I guess Barbara Parkins herself is the one who kind of connected Dion to the studio, and, and Dion was not yet quite a household name. I think she'd done uh, the theme from Alfie, so she'd already done a little bit of film music, and I'm not sure if she'd really gotten into her Burt Backrack, Hal David stuff. Maybe they were all right around the same time, but there's a poignancy and a, and, a, and a yearning quality in Dionne Warwick's voice that I think is just, it so perfectly matches this you know moment in time that these women are all going through. And so, yeah, I, I really couldn't have imagine any better and 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 again i think the music there and there's some other great musical numbers i i love neely's uh it's impossible number oh, i mean that's so good <laughs> so good it's impossible to tell you right now if i tried it i'd never know how gee fucking for me far as i know far as I see, I'm the winner, boy, I'd make a mess, baby, unless you say so. It's impossible, it's not my style, if I tried it, I'd miss by a mile, mile, not worth a dime, ain't got the stuff, ain't got the time, I'm a loser, I ain't for success, baby, unless you say so. 
and and they, and I know that I don't think that is actually Patty Duke's voice, but it's still not. her her body she language. She did record all of the songs. Right, she sang. She could sing. But but you know her her body language, the, her little dance, the way she kind of makes eye contact with the camera there. It just it just burns right through the screen, and it's like yes, it is so it is such a great. And then you know again, you listen to the lyrics, you know, get into what she's saying here. And it is. It's you know this isn't like you know a loaded soundtrack. I think there's like four or five you know, original songs, but they're all quite quite good and and very effective. And and uh, this is another piece of the uh, the, the the bit. I, you know, I, I I'm not you know madly uh, uh, fanatical about uh, uh, Tony Pollard's uh, "Come Live with Me." <laughs> I, I have such a soft spot for that song and for Tony singing that song. He's such a schmoozer, you know, totally. He's such a, such a schmoozer. Come live with me And be my love If only for a Forgive me if I do right, love, but darling, I tried, love, and so I say, come live with me. But like, uh, two things I wanted to quickly mention about, about the, the songs, the It's Impossible number, um, the way that, that Patty Duke commands the screen in that scene, that is the moment when I first watched the film that, um, I kind of was like, oh boy, this is, this is a, this is a performance that I'm that like I can already feel is going to mean something major. Yeah. Uh, well, and I'll say, I'll scene. say, uh, Patty is the one I've I got more of a crush on. I mean, you know, Jennifer's out of my league, and <laughs> and Anne is is untouchable, you know. But I, I could probably get in with Neely. <laughs> <laughs> I could um, I could yeah. be good to her. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the second thing about the songs was the um, I kind of just wanted to briefly if if it's okay touch on the um come live with me scene in the sanitarium yeah. oh yes of course uh, that, that's probably where a lot of people felt like this one has really leaped over the cliff there but yeah extrapolate yeah. please expound um to, because the that scene in particular really represents for me the multifaceted reactions that kind of come out of the, the this film or that I have to this film where within certain scenes I'm having reactions that are simultaneous yet contradictory from moment to moment um and that kind of it's it's a strange it's a strange feeling I mean it happens a lot where you're having kind of you know I don't think that we talk about it enough this idea that like we can have multiple reactions to things and something is not all good or all bad or whatever whatever um it's ridiculous and glorious at the same time you know but just seeing you know seeing it through different prisms or different lenses yeah, and so the scene, this, you know, it's a pretty famous scene from the film in which Neely is recounting her experiences at the sanitarium, and, you know, she's, it's this dance, you know, this sort of dance, this recreational dance that, that happens. Little talent show or something. This talent show or whatever, and, you know, she um, starts singing Come Live With Me, 
And then we kind of hear this voice coming from the back of the room, and it's Tony in a wheelchair who doesn't know anything or anyone, and yet can like is 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 being called back to with the song, and they yes. share this duet. It is a an absurd scenario. It's kind of tone deaf, and yet, and yet, I have cried during this scene. I'm genuinely moved by this scene, even though the saxophone going on in the background and the <laughs> just, just happened to and, be there waiting the for that moment of, you know the shot of tony slowly wheeling yes. into the frame from the bottom <laughs> is genuinely hilarious to me right and yet the and you know neely and tony don't really have you know they they didn't have they knew each other but there's not like this emotional connection between these two that that had been established or anything and yet this moment that is shared between these two characters uh this brief moment of kind of recognition uh coming from tony that then kind of just like goes he just sort of retreats back into kind of like his vegetable state um and she just sort of is like trying <laughs> yeah. to reach out to him it's tony, it's tony. absurd it's tony, like yeah it's just like he's just like he's kind of just like not there but he's kind of singing it's so absurd it's so absurd it's it's one of the most ridiculous scenes in the movie it is maybe the most ridiculous scene in the movie and again i i there's something about it that that just moves me so much uh, and in some outrageous and, and convoluted way that there's the scene evokes a sense of frailty and loss within that encounter um that kind of to me gets at some of like the idea that like sincere this idea of like sincere trash can uh in those moments um you know has the ability to to get at in a way that i just find so interesting and such a and so strange to experience and i just feel like that scene really really gets at this kind of your brain being pulled in or your emotional mm-hmm. self kind of being pulled in all these different directions as you watch this film. Yeah. Well, and, and, and that not just some person, but a, a series of people had to have the nerve to say, yes, let's go ahead and go for <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, but, like, but because yes. I think they recognize that beyond that absurdity, beyond that utterly implausible notion is there's, there is that willingness to say, you know, let's let's cast this moment. Let's let's form this bond, uh, even temporarily, against all odds, uh, against all credulity. Because you know, here are Tony and Neely. They were the breadwinners. They were they the were the, the cash cows. As Neely you know, out, yeah. and they've both wound up in this you know funny farm in this crazy <laughs> mm-hmm. crazy. It was. Loony it is camp. not a nut house. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, and and. Um, it is. It's, it is kind of an unabashed indulgence and pathos and, you know, you know, melodrama. So, yeah, it's camp. Sure, I guess you can sort of relegate it there. But, you know, what what's the heart underneath it? This isn't just winking cynicism, you know, making fun of people. There's there's a there's a tenderness at the heart of all that. And I, I appreciate your ability to to get on with it. And 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 I guess I just encourage listeners who maybe are wondering you know what katie and david are smoking here <laughs> to, to, to give this movie that kind of an opportunity to, to to impact you in that way now again maybe you know we're all wired a little bit differently and and some folks are just not going to see it that way or or want to even spend the time taking a chance that it might work out but uh i i really do feel like there's there's many of these types of moments um and from a guy's perspective, maybe you have to give yourself over a little bit uh, in ways that you're not used to with these types of movies. But 
I, th- I think it's there uh, for the taking, and I think it's a it's a very enriching and rewarding experience to to get caught up in this world. And I've I have completely enjoyed this past week or so. I mean, I, I read the book in two days on the third and the fourth of July, and just you know plowed right through. And I probably will want to check it out again somewhere down the road. And and watching this movie multiple times or all the supplemental features, you know. Uh, do we want to talk a little bit more about any of the other men in the movie? I mean, Lion Burke um, and all that. I don't know. Is, is there much more to say about that? I don't want to um, you know, drag this you out. Know, you know, Lion... Ugh, Lord. I mean, I... I'll say... You the, know, I have a... Yeah. Oh, the, sorry. The book set him up to be something, you know, <laughs> that the screen never could quite <laughs> relate, you know? No. It, if you remember in the book, he was just the ultimate dreamboat. I'm thinking some... I'm kind thinking of, like a Jude Law type of like yeah yeah figure. Jude Law I don't know. yeah exactly so like you just know. like this kind of just like objective like like objectively gorgeous mm-hmm. like kind mm-hmm. of figure like this Adonis Elan Delon somebody like that yeah you know, yeah right. something like that where you're just like you're and, just blinded by the beauty and then like Lion then like she walks in to return the contracts and it, there's Lion I'm like I remember my reaction <laughs> when I first I'm like oh. That's interesting. <laughs> okay. Yeah, he's That's just a they, you know a standard he's, chiseled he's just middle-aged a, you know, guy, handsome, yeah. handsome guy with you know nothing, nothing that yeah you know he's got a, handsome, a jaw, just <laughs> generic handsome guy. All right, right. Yeah, he's got a jaw. <laughs> <There's>, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, there was definitely a letdown in, in that uh, in that area. Um, yeah, you know the men. Um, They're pretty. You know, I have a soft spot for Mel. I think that mm-hmm. you know, I think. I like Mel. I kind of, and I have a soft spot for Tony too. But like in general, yeah, this this movie, the men in this movie are, you know, they're whatever. They're and, not, yeah, they're, not as, they're well. They're like how a lot of women are in a lot of other movies. You know, exactly. just kind of there for the scenery and to fulfill a certain function there. Yeah. Um. Any other points you want to cover? Let, let's talk a little bit about the Criterion release, the supplements. What did you think? Did you, did you get a chance to watch the whole uh, Princess Italia cruise uh, documentary thing? I didn't get a chance to watch that, but I am aware of that. Yeah, it's um, uh, you know, and, it, again, oh, I got I got to check it out. It's a, it's a um very interesting time capsule of where Valley of the Dolls rested in sort of the popular psyche at the time because it's it's hosted by army archer and some other guy but they're just a couple of corny you know schlubs commentators and they're asking the most you know hackneyed questions and they're they're sitting on this beautiful luxury cruiser which i guess is taking its maiden voyage and so the here's the concept for people who aren't familiar with it they started this voyage in venice italy and their their destination was Venice, you know, California, you know, off the coast of uh, Los Angeles and uh, Southern California. There, uh, so they they actually had the the world theatrical debut on this ship, which was not really an ideal place to show the uh, show a movie. Uh, Patty Duke tells the story itself, but apparently the projection was kind of sped up because the ship's generators kind of overpowered the projector. Oh my God. So everybody's kind of talking in a chipmunk voice. So you're kind of watching the movie at like one and a half speed. So if you want to, it's kinda... like singing in the rain all over <laughs> exactly. again. Exactly. Right. So Cavalier. Yeah, and 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 again, this film was entirely you know hotly anticipated, and I think the audience reaction was a little bit middling to say the least and again you've got the press you've got celebrities you've got just this kind of conglomeration of odd beautiful people 
all privileged to be on this ship. And I don't think the movie had quite the impact. Uh, and I think even Jackie Suzanne's first take was, you know, kind of a legendary quote. You made a real piece of shit. She said this to <laughs> Mark Robeson, right? And and of course that that's her speaking her truth. And yeah, and frank. if you and if she's, she's looking frank. at a twenty year historic narrative condensed into this little you know you know little bubble, um, I I can imagine where she felt like you know. And then and then especially if your last impression of watching the film is that ending where um, Ann Wells goes back home again, returns to the the house that w- was a long distant memory in the book. I, I have to imagine Jackie Suzanne felt a little bit gutted. Now, maybe she knew that the screenplay was already changed. I have to imagine she probably did. But, you know, maybe the impact just didn't make quite, you know, the impression that she was hoping it would. So the movie, I think, you know, did, you know, it did not bowl over the critics by any means. But I think the critics also had their fangs out for this thing from the get-go. Um, but the idea that they're kind of doing this reality TV documentary thing of touring this ship, you know, across, I mean, they, they go to Jamaica and oh, here's the Calypso dancers on the beach, you know, now they're in beautiful Acapulco and here's oh the cliff divers. It's, it is cornball heaven, you know, so. Oh, that sounds amazing. Okay. I'm going to have to check that out yeah, immediately. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I knew about the, that, um, voyage, um, mm-hmm. you know, from just seeing pictures and also, you know, Patty Duke goes into it in her, yep. um, in her book. Uh, and just sort of recounts the experience of watching this film, being horrified by it, and then being stuck on a boat uh, afterwards. For like the next with, three weeks, like you can't even get off. For the next three off, weeks. Right. Uh, just, you know, basically just, you know, wanting to just hide yeah. uh, from everyone. And, and she was married uh, at the time. And I think there's even a couple shots yes. of her sitting next to her husband on the boat. And I think mm-hmm. they may have actually left somewhere in the Caribbean. And they finally did get off. I think oh, that's, that's even good. mentioned yeah. that little documentary, but oh gosh, yeah, but it's, it's yeah. very interesting because Jackie Susanna's is on the ship. Uh, Sharon Tate is interviewed a couple times. Yeah. Um, you get to hear um, Tony Scotty, the guy who played, played Tony Polar, sing mm. his version of the theme from the Valley of the Dolls while he's on the oh, gondolas oh uh, oh floating through Venice. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh boy, <laughs> it's, it's I'm curious. I'm curious. Uh, quite a nugget there. About yeah, what that for sure. Like. Uh, but you know, there's other. Uh, Really, some good behind-the-scenes stuff, uh, some good making of. Uh, you and I both had a very uh, dismal reaction to the commentary track. Uh, do we want to touch on that just a quick minute? <laughs> um, or is it just yes. let it go? Uh, yeah, you know, it's... Um, it, the commentary is from the 2009, I believe, release, a uh, DVD release of the film. Uh, you can tell it's 2009 because, uh, you know, Desperate Housewives keeps getting mentioned. Right. Um, and... You know, it's with Barbara Parkins and uh, the gossip columnist Ted Casablancas, who, uh, you know, had sort of t- taken his professional name from the Ted character in the um, in the book and film. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's just very self indulgent in a in a way of kind of like let me try to uh, he j- there's just the commentary is just used in a, as an excuse to kind of hammer Barbara Parkins about. Um, getting all the gossip that he possibly can out of her to the point where it's just kind of um, depressing to yeah. listen to. I, I found it kind of soul-sucking experience after a while. Right. I think we uh, both kind of gave up halfway through. Yeah, just, uh, I gave enough. up half at the halfway point and, you know, and, uh, you know, and uh, she kind of, you know, um, 
Well, she she has to fend him off, as she probably she has, has to, fended she's, off she's many men in her life. <laughs> she's busy fending him off, kind of giving like kind of half answers to things uh, for things that happened so long ago, and then also just you know really com- just she cannot get over how much she hates her hair and her outfits in this movie, and so that's pretty much the bulk of the conversation. And you know, after a while, it is just like it's just a. Uh, it's just a sort of soul sucking experience yeah. that I couldn't. I found it depressing, and I couldn't do it anymore. Kind of uh, tedious. So I, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, if Barbara perhaps had just been given the opportunity to tell her stories, it might be a little bit more worthwhile. And maybe there is something towards the end that redeems it. But like like you, Katie, I wasn't quite able to, you know, work my way all the way through. But that's okay. I, I kind of joke. Yeah. Maybe we should make our own commentary one of these days. Hey, <laughs> and, and I would be down. totally down with that. You know, we, can, uh, <laughs> we can set up a rewatch somewhere down the road. QRL. Yeah. <laughs> Blu-rays up and and uh, mm-hmm. and and do a commentary track. <laughs> I did it for 2001: A Space Odyssey uh, last year. I could do it for. Oh, Broadway that's awesome! <laughs> yes. Oh, so so maybe we should start wrapping things up. I think we've gone pretty well in depth on this. Any final comments you want to make? I mean, I think you've been awesome. Your your uh, observations have been very enjoyable for me to listen to, and I hope our listeners have gotten some uh, some great insights from it as well. But kind of what's uh, what's your final take on this thing? Um, my final take on this thing is that, you know, I, it's a film that I think is, it's one that, you know, I'm going to, is going to be something that's kind of kicking around in my brain, uh, you know, for the foreseeable future. Uh, it's, I think it's a very special film. Uh, you know, I think it's a film that can, it really... In, like we said, kind of encapsulates a very, very specific moment in time. I think it's a film that um, has so much value that is un, underexplored, uh, despite being this kind of cult iconic piece uh, of work. Um, you know, I think, and I think that the film is at once entertaining in and fun in in the in the way that it depicts you know these the rise and fall of and you know uh, of these three women kind of navigating uh through life and through a very specific business and the way that that kind of applies to sort of broader experiences that women go through but in a way that's kind of allows for this sort of glamorous suffering almost um you know this kind of like voyeurism into kind of the the troubled lives of these beautiful women um but that, you know, really resonates on, uh, you know, beyond that, resonates kind of on a deeper level for me at least. And I think that it's um, a film that has just so much to offer that if you're willing to open yourself up to it, you can really, um, you know, that there's something for everybody, whether it's a moment or an idea or a performance. Uh, and I think it's a film that is a testament to, uh, to the multi-layered simultaneous reactions and and uh, feelings that you can have while watching a film and this idea that that is okay that that is encouraged that you um, that film is that complicated and complex and contradictory uh, and that it's fun to grapple with all of those things that are pulling at each other and that something doesn't just have to be kind of like you know 
one reaction to something. And I think that this, the, the reason that this film kicks around in my brain so much is because there are so many different reactions I have that are always pulling at each other that sometimes support each other and sometimes don't. And that that's the, that to me is the excitement and the reward of, you know, of watching film that things can be that, um, that complex. Uh, within how you're reacting to something and that it's fun to explore that and I think that Valley of the Dolls kind of has all those things also Patty Duke is amazing <laughs> that is my final note that, Patty Duke is everything that seals and the deal yeah. she seals the deal she's incredible and I just if you've seen the film and you didn't really care for it watch it again just open yourself up to the film and to her in it because um, I think she's doing something really special and really amazing and it doesn't get more entertaining than her in this film yeah, I, I really heartily agree with everything you said there. This is a rich text, you know, I mean, you know, great cinema. Whether you want to talk about the Bergman, Fellini, Kurosawa, Antonioni, yeah. or yeah. you want to talk about some of the more... Let's talk about Valley of the Dolls. Well, <laughs> you know? well, you know, here's the thing, Katie. I've been, you know, in my podcasting and blogging and, and whatnot you know, in recent months, I've been doing... Ozu, I've been doing Kurosawa, I've been doing Robert Bresson, uh, you know, I've been doing some of the heavyweights, um, and, and those are astonishing, wonderful films that, that I completely enjoy. But to me, this this fit right in there. I mean, in a way, it was, it was enough of a kind of a refresher, kind of a step away from the classic high concept art house films. But there's every bit as much. I mean, we've gone on for nearly two hours here, and I don't think we've been, you know, spinning our wheels or repeating ourselves. This is this is a film that has a lot of depth to it. There's a lot that you can extract from it, and and that is all I really ask of any film, um, whether it's you know uh, sight and sound top two fifty, or you know some midnight you know uh, you know treasure that's going to get the audience hooting and hollering when you throw it showed at the rep theater. Um, or just sitting at home watching it, you know, by myself or with my wife, and just letting these images and these scenes roll through my head a little bit. I, I you know, you you raise the question: is this is this really a Criterion film, or what does this say about Criterion's brand? But uh, whether the Criterion was just doing this, you know, they did release it with Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which is a film I I've watched once. I haven't really gotten my head around it, and haven't really even wanted to kind of get into comparison comparing this one to that one because in some ways you know my first impression of beyond the valley is just kind of a it's another kind of chauvinistic mockery or dismissal of this film like yeah we're just i mean and it doesn't mean that that film doesn't have its own roles and pleasures and and you know uh edge to it that uh, you know once i kind of give it a, a more sustained look maybe i'll find something there but to me it just felt you know, uh, uh, as a way of sort of trivializing the 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 truth of this story by just you know more boobs and more absurdity, and that's kind of the rejoinder that Roger Ebert and and uh, Roger Corman uh, came up with as a way of exploiting and cashing in on the Valley of the Dolls as this salacious you know sleaze fest, and and I I, I kind of regret that that's you know that these two films have to be associated in that way. Uh, I also recognize that this film, you know, both of those films have respective audiences that <laughs> might not be interested in the other one. And that's why Criterion didn't do a box set, which I'm glad they did, didn't link them together I'm that very, way. Yeah, I'm mm -hmm. very grateful. I mean, I, I, I really, really liked Beyond the Valley of the Dolls when I saw it, but I am mm -hmm. super glad and grateful that that is not a choice that they went with. <laughs> um, you know, I don't, 
the only thing that I think of in relation to the two is, you know, Beyond the Valley is is an intentional sort of camp experience, right. and um, right. and and the parts of of Valley that of Valley the Dolls that are uh, are not intentional. And to me, that's what makes this. I you know I don't want to get into camp too much, but like I, I think that that's what makes any kind of idea of camp interesting is when you know the idea that it it's supposed to be and it's supposed to be this kind of like cosmic unintentional thing that kind of comes together, right. and that's what makes it so. So to me, that the th- the elements that go into that and what does that mean um, is far far more interesting to dissect than this kind of unintentional or intentional yeah. Yeah. kind of camp uh, which you know can be very enjoyable most of the time I find it kind of insufferable but in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls I really enjoy it mm-hmm. um, but it makes for a, a much less to me um, complex experience at least on that level uh, you know so uh, that's kind of how I think of the two but other than that yeah to me they're just you know totally different things that you know are just doing totally different things and you know I I don't know. Like, I really like that film, but it's, you know, I, I, I find, you know, I like to sink my teeth into the other one, obviously. Yeah. More. I'll, I'll get to it when I get to that point in my <laughs> blogging timeline there. But for right now, I'm happy just to focus my yeah. attention on the real Valley of the Dolls. Yeah, the real Valley Yeah, of the yeah. I, I, I tend to like the sincerity rather than the calculation in my movies. So yeah. That's just Same. Me. It's, more, it's more interesting, uh, I think. All right, Katie. Well, I think this is a good time to wrap things up. Sarah, why don't you give listeners some uh, ways to find you online? Oh, okay. Um, yeah, my blog is called Cinema Enthusiast, uh, and my Twitter handle is at Cinephile24. Um, same, my Instagram is also at Cinephile24. Uh, and, yeah, those are the main ways that you can find me. Fantastic. Well, I do enjoy having you uh, uh, back in touch. We did a podcast about Claire Denis' white material was a couple of years ago with Scott and I and uh, really good to reconnect uh, and have a uh, voice-to-voice conversation. Uh, listeners, you can find me uh, writing for Criterion Cast, where I'm also the host of the Eclipse Viewer. We'll be doing our series on the late Ozu box set over the next couple of weeks there, finishing up our coverage of Ozu, the master uh, director's uh, latter portion of his career, where I host that with Trevor Barrett. Uh, we really welcome your feedback to this episode. This one might stir up a little conversation. We certainly hope it does. If, uh, if you got something to say, find us uh, at the Criterion Cast page on Facebook, or maybe we'll put the comments open on our website here at CriterionCast.com. Uh, please check it out. I found some links to some some uh, good articles on Valley of the Dolls, including some of the interview, the reviews that were uh, written by Bosley Crowther and uh, Roger Ebert himself <laughs> back in 1967. And oh, uh, yeah, yeah, they're they're not the kindest. Let's just say that. No. But uh, it's part of the context. It's part of the big story. So, thank you for listening, everybody. Thanks again, Katie, for joining me this morning. Oh, and we'll thank you so much for soon. having me. It's been great. Bye bye.